and we have been for several weeks now, we've been looking at the opening section of Romans chapter 7. Last week we stopped at verse 4, and this week we're going to cover verses 5 and 6. And I, I really, part of me regrets the fact that so many people are out this morning due to the weather and the circumstances because these two verses are the linchpin upon which the rest of Romans 7 and all of Romans 8 hangs. This, these two verses sum up everything that we've talked about, uh, Romans 6 and into Romans 7 and up to where we are now, and introduce the concept of living in the new life of the Spirit as opposed to the old life in the flesh. Verse 5 describes what life was like before we died to the law. And verse 6 describes what life is like when you live in the newness of the Spirit of God. These two verses, and I'm going a little odd up here, but I'll I'll be okay if y'all can still hear me, right? Amen. These two verses set the direction... For the rest of chapter 7 and all of chapter 8, the rest of chapter 7, after this brief mention of living in the Spirit, we won't pick that up again until we get to chapter 8. The rest of chapter 7 focuses on living in the flesh. It describes the life that verse 5 details for us. And then when we get to chapter 8, we'll pick up what it means to live in the Spirit, and we'll the whole of chapter 8 builds on that theme of living in the Spirit and expounds on what it means to live in the newness of the Spirit. So we're going to set forth the course of the rest of chapter 7 and all of chapter 8 this morning in Romans chapter 7, verses 5 and 6. I'm going to read that whole passage that we've read uh, both of the last two Sundays, again this morning, beginning with Romans chapter 7 and verse 1, it goes this way. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she's loose from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she's free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh... The motions of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we're delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. That's the whole passage. Amen. We'll start with verse 5. And just to, to key us back in on where we are in this, it says, For when we were in the flesh... The motions of of sins, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. Now, for several weeks, we've been talking about the fact that we're no longer bound to the law of the flesh. By virtue of the death of Jesus Christ and our participation in that death, 
And we participate in that death through repentance where we die with him through water baptism where we are buried with him. And the scripture says actually buried into Jesus Christ. Amen. And then the infilling of the Holy Ghost, that resurrection of life, which sets us free from the dominion of sin and the law. We, we died with him. We're buried with him. We're resurrected with him. And we have a new life. Amen. So this, this verse, verse 5, speaks of our condition before that, before we were liberated, before we were joined with Jesus Christ in salvation, we were in the flesh. And that's the phrase that it uses in the first portion of Romans chapter 7 and verse 5, in the flesh. To be in the flesh is to be controlled by the flesh or controlled by the sinful nature of the flesh. The phrase in the flesh is really a summary of the primary concepts that Paul has been addressing in the book of Romans. To be under the dominion of sin is to be in the flesh. To be under the dominion of the law is to be in the flesh. To be under the influence of the powers that dominate and destroy the human soul is to be in the flesh. To be in the flesh is to be under the absolute control of the sinful impulses, that sin nature of the flesh. That is the sad condition of all those who fail to find salvation in Jesus Christ. And that is to be contrasted with the condition of those who are saved. If you, I'm going to skip ahead to Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. Because Romans 8 is where we deal with what it means to be saved. And Romans 8 and 9 says, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. That's the contrast. There's in the flesh, and then there's in the Spirit. Now, I know that's jumping ahead, but it establishes that contrast. Those who are filled with the Spirit are in the Spirit, and those who are not are in the flesh. That's the difference. The spirit-filled believer, then, should not live his life under the control of the flesh. The spirit-filled believer should not live his life under the dominion of the sin, nature, and the flesh, and those things that controlled him when he was in the flesh. Instead, he should be under the control of the Spirit of God or in the Spirit. Amen? So the contrast here is between those who are in the flesh in Romans 7 and 5 and those who are not in the flesh or are in the spirit in Romans 8 and 9. Amen? That's the contrast between those who are saved and those who are not. Those who are saved then do not live their lives in the flesh. In other words, they do not live under the control, under the dominion, under the authority of sin. That's the difference between the saved and the unsaved. Now the verse says, the motions of sins, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. This verse crowns Paul's teaching on the relationship between law and sin. The law condemned sin. 
But Paul implies that that prohibition against sin actually stirred up the sinful desires within us. The law itself did not create the compulsion to sin. Our sin nature does that for us. We, we have a sin nature that has the compulsion to sin, but the law took advantage of that sin nature by forbidding certain behaviors, by making certain things illegal or wrong to do, it actually enticed the sin nature to desire to participate in those behaviors. The notion here is not that the law was bad or the law was corrupt. The law is an evil thing. The notion here is that our sin nature was enticed by what the law forbid us to do. Very often to the sinful heart, just knowing something is wrong makes it enticing. Just knowing something is against the law makes it that much more attractive. Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 17 says that stolen waters are sweet. By comparison, they're sweeter than waters you didn't have to steal. Amen. There's just something about human nature that is enticed by that which is forbidden. How many ever seen a cow stretching its head through the barbed wire to get to the grass on the other? It, it just tastes better because it's on the other side of the fence. That's just flesh. That's just nature. That's just the way that, that, that nature works within us. Amen. It's enticed by that which is forbidden. Amen. That's part of the power that the sin nature has over us. It plants the seeds of a, a spirit of rebellion against the laws of God. It entices us to want a taste of that which has been forbidden, that which is on the other side of the fence. Amen? Let's look again at how Paul says it. The motions of sins, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. Now, that doesn't make a lot of real good sense to us in modern English vernacular. The word motions there is a Greek word that invokes the ideas of affections, passions, or impulses. Vincent's word study says that in early English, in the time that the King James Bible was translated, the word motions was used to be synonymous with emotions or impulses. And so what Paul is talking about is the impulses of sin that were stirred up by the law. The emotions or impulses of sin were stirred to activity by the law. They were at work in our members, the members of our bodies. That's in what we do with our bodies, our hands and our feet and our mouth. Amen. That Those motions or impulses that were stirred to activity by the law were at work in our members of our bodies, and they produced fruit unto death. Now, if you'll remember, we ended last Sunday morning talking about bringing forth fruit unto God because that's how verse 4 ended. Amen. We brought forth fruit that was pleasing to God. But now we've come back to the notion of producing fruit. But instead of fruit that's pleasing to God, we're talking about the kind of fruit that sin produces in our lives. And the kind of fruit that sin produces is characterized by death. In other words, the consequences of sin is death. And the fruit that sin produced in us was not the fruit of life, but it was the fruit of death. It tarnished everything it touched. 
It promised pleasure and satisfaction, but it, it left us hollow and empty with a lingering desire for something more. That's how sin works. It, it never satisfies you. It, it's never in and of itself whole and satisfied. It always draws you further and further and always entices you with the promise of a reward of satisfaction that is never coming. It's like the donkey and the carrot. You remember the donkey and the carrot? Sin keeps drawing you further and further away from God, but it never produces the satisfaction, the abundance of life that it promises. Instead, it produces bondage and death. That's the fruit of sin. The fruit of sin is death. That brings us to verse 6. Verse 6 says, but now we're delivered from the law. That being dead wherein we were held. We're delivered from the law and the law is now dead. That we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Let me clarify something because I, I made this point very strongly last week. The law is not what's dead. It was the bond that held us to the law. That marriage bond died. We died. Amen. And I made that case very strongly last week, and I, I, didn't, I don't want to undo it by, by stating it wrongly this morning. Amen. We're delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held. That marriage bond that held us to law is dead. That we should serve in the newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So now Paul wraps up the thought of these first, verse, first six verses of Romans chapter 7 that we've taken now three weeks to get through. He wraps it up. By going back to the analogy of marriage. And that's been what a lot of this has been about. Amen. We've been delivered from the law by our death with Jesus Christ. We've been delivered from that marriage bond. That was the definitive turning point in our lives. When we died with Jesus Christ. That's when it all changed. When we, it wasn't just when we made up our minds to serve him. It was when we came to an altar of repentance and we died out. It was when we were buried with him in water baptism, in his name. We were buried with him into Christ. Amen. And then when we rose to walk in the newness of the Spirit, when the Spirit of God filled us and we received the baptism of the Holy Ghost, that was the turning point in our lives. That's whenever we were, that marriage bond that held us to the law was broken. Amen. And so whenever that happened, when he filled us with the Spirit, we became a new creature. According to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, old things were passed away and all things were made brand new. The old bondage to sin, the old bondage to the law was among those old things that passed away whenever we died out with Christ. Amen. Before we were joined with Jesus Christ through the plan of salvation, we were bound to the law. And the law actually enticed us to sin by limiting us to the futile effort of saving ourselves through our own obedience. That's where we talk. When we talked about Romans 7 and 1, I spent a, a whole week on Romans 7 and 1, a whole lesson talking about the difference between the, the being bound to the law and being bound to Christ. And the difference was the motivation. 
Amen. The difference was not the, the set of rules that I live by necessarily. The difference was the motivation. And being bound to the law, legalistic approach to salvation is self-centered. It is self-motivated. We, we, we're trying to save ourselves by our own actions. We're trying to save ourselves by our own obedience to the law. And that self-serving, self-centered motivation has never been enough to override the impulses of sin that are produced by our sin nature. Amen? That, that, that self-centered view that I've got to obey the law to save myself was never enough to override that impulse, the motions of sin that are, that are enhanced by the law that are working against me. That's why the marriage metaphor was so important. The contrast between law and grace is not about being set free from the need to live a moral, godly, and righteous life. That's not what it's about at all. It's about the motivations that cause us to live a moral, godly, and righteous life. The motivation of judgment alone, that self-centered, self-saving, self-serving motivation was not enough to curb the impulses of sin that are stirred up by the law. The motivation, however, of love for God empowers us to live righteous. I recognize under grace that my salvation does not rest upon the need for me to be perfect, but it rests upon the perfect sinless sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that knowledge alone sets me free from the bondage of the law. I live righteous. I live godly, but I don't do it because I'm forced to do so at the threat of eternal judgment. If I fail, I am lost. I do it because I show forth the praises of the one who saved me from my sins, who called me out of darkness and into his marvelous light. I do it because I'm saved. Amen. Well, pastor, I can twist that all around then and say, I can live however I want to live. No, you can't because you can't live in the flesh. And live in the spirit. They're going in opposite directions. Amen. It's about the motivation for why I do what I do. By dying with Christ, I've been delivered from the negative result of the law. I now live under a new authority. And that authority is the authority of Jesus Christ in my life. And that gives me the power to live in the spirit Instead of in the flesh, it gives me the power to overcome my sinful desires, those sinful impulses, and live a holy life. The difference is the difference between the woman who married the tyrant that we've talked about for two weeks now and the woman who married out of love, the second husband. Amen. She obeyed the first husband. She, she fulfilled the law of marriage. She did everything that was required of her, and she did it out of fear of judgment. But whenever she was married, the second time she was married out of love. And she did the same things. But she did them for a different reason. And it became so much easier to do. Amen. It's not that the contrast between law and grace is not about setting me free from the need to live righteous. It's about why I live righteous. It's about understanding 
when the motivation changes, the whole game changes. And that which was hard to do now becomes easy to do because of the motivation behind it. So we are set free. We've been set free from the legalistic need for self-salvation. and been liberated by the fact that Jesus Christ has saved us. We're free from the dominion of the law, but we're not free from the need to live according to God's moral law. That hasn't changed. What pleased God before still pleases God. Now, God's moral nature never changes. It is eternal. Amen. And we live according to what pleases God. But now we live a life that brings forth fruit unto God, not unto death. Amen. By obeying, by living according to his word, his will, his dictates, the word of God. We fulfill the moral code of God. We live according to what pleases God and we do it out of our love for him. Because he saved us. That's the difference. That's where so much theology gets twisted. If the contrast is between law and grace, then that has to mean I can throw the law away. That's not what it means at all. And that's why the marriage metaphor is so important in the beginning of this chapter. Because it details that difference. Amen. I, I live the same. The marriage requires the same things of me in both instances. The difference is why I do it and how easy it is to do. And, and I know there's some, Brother Andrew's classes in here, Brother Bobby, and different ones that you haven't heard all three lessons that dealt with this, but they're all on our Facebook Media Ministries page. And if you're lost this morning, I, I strongly suggest you go back and listen to the last couple of lessons because it'll explain better than I can take the time to explain this morning what I'm talking about when I talk about that marriage metaphor. Amen? Now, in the rest of this verse... Paul focuses on one specific result of being freed from the law. That we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What's so beautiful about this passage is that Paul ties together all that variety of metaphors that we've talked about for so many weeks now. We, we go quickly to the word serve. Now we've been set free. We've, we just tied the marriage metaphor in. And now we, we go back to the slave metaphor, which was a big part of, of Romans chapter 6. Amen. Serve means to serve as a slave or to obey. So the importance of the slave metaphor comes in. It all starts coming together. We, 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 we were married to the law. Now we're married to Jesus Christ, and we are his servant. We, we serve him. We are, in effect, his slave. Not regular slaves, not, not a slave that's forced, but what the Old Testament calls a love slave. Amen. The, the slave that serves his master out of love, not because we're compelled to do so by the, by the bondage of slavery, not because we're forced to do so. That was the first marriage. But because we love our master and we serve him out of love. So we've been released from the bondage of the law, but we're still living under the obligation to the moral code of God. Amen, and we do it out of love. This is what you need to understand and what is emphasized by the usage of the word serve. Freedom from the law is not freedom from obedience. I'm going to say that again. Freedom from the law is not freedom from obedience. 
Freedom from the law is freedom from that negative, legalistic attitude towards obedience that my obedience is going to save me. Amen. My faith saves me, and my faith produces obedience. Paul called it the obedience of faith. I believe that if I repent of my sins, he's going to wash them away. And my faith obeys, and I repent of my sins. I believe that once I repent of my sins, I have to be baptized in his name. Amen. To be baptized into him. And my faith compels me to go to the water and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That's the obedience of my faith. I believe that if I repent of my sins and I'm baptized in his name, he's going to fill me with his spirit. Amen. And my faith compels me to open my heart and my life to him and let him come and live inside of me. And he fills me with his spirit. I speak with other tongues as the spirit of God gives the others. That's not something I do. That's the obedience of my faith. My faith produces obedience. Freedom from the law is not freedom from obedience. It's, it's really the freedom to serve God in a different motivation. I now obey him because I love him because he saved me. Amen. We serve him out of love, not out of compulsion, not because I'm forced to. So by teaching us not to sin, all through Romans chapter 6, we dealt with the question of sin in the life of a believer. And we determined that, that you can't continue in sin. If you've been set free, you're the servant of Jesus Christ. You can't go against his law. You can't go against what he said. You have to obey him. Amen. That's what we said all the way through Romans 6. And Romans 6 instructs us then that we still have to live according to the moral law of God. We still got to do what God says to do. We still got to live in obedience to God. But now in the sixth verse of chapter 7, Paul shows us that the alternative to living in the dominion of the law is not lawlessness. It's not that I, I don't have any obligation, the moral code of God, but rather it's holiness through Jesus Christ. I'm made holy through him. My life, the obligation that I have now is stronger than it was before. Before I had the law spelled out black and white. And I could drive a Mack truck in between the premises of the law. I could make up all kinds of ways to get around the law. And still, that's what the Pharisees did. They had the law, 630 commandments. They had them memorized. But they had all these ins and outs and ways to get around. They do an in run around the law. That's law. It's, it's strict. It's written down. The standard I'm held to now is much higher. It's not lower than the law. It's not less than the law. It's greater than the law. His law is now written on my heart. Amen. And now I serve him and I serve the moral code of God. And there are no end runs around the moral law of God. Amen. I, 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 law said that thou shalt not, you know, you, you, you can't watch this particular thing. But the, the moral code said, I won't put any evil thing before my eyes. And law, it was easy to, to find a way around. But the moral code, I can't find a way around. Amen. I have to live in the spirit, not in the flesh. 
Amen. No longer do we attempt to do God's will just by adhering to a list of rules. And there are rules, yes. And the word of God stands and the law of God is, is sure and settled and it doesn't change. But I don't just live by the list of rules. I don't just try to conform my sin nature to the holiness of God. Now I live by the righteousness of God. That spirit of God that has filled me and lives inside of me and empowers me. And instead of living in my flesh and bondage to the flesh and trying to conform to the will of God. I now live in the spirit, amen, and am guided by the spirit and live a life of holiness through God. Before I was trying to be righteous in my flesh and I failed utterly because I can't be righteous in my flesh. But now that I've been saved from that, I haven't been saved from the need to be righteous. I've been saved from the need to be in my flesh. Now I'm righteous in the Spirit of God. And the Holy Ghost, which lives inside of me, empowers me. Amen. That's what it means to be Christian. That's what it means to be a child of God. I live for him through the power of the Holy Ghost. Not just through the power of the law. Amen. That doesn't mean that I can ignore the law. It really means that I'm held to a higher standard than the law. And we've spent, I don't, have, I, don't, I don't have the time to go back and reteach lessons we've taught all of chapter 6 and into chapter 7. But really the standard we're held to now is greater than the standard we were held to before. It's not less than. It's the difference, and I used this analogy early on somewhere in chapter 6. It's the difference between a speed limit sign and a cop on every street corner. The speed limit sign, I can ignore it every now and then. But when there's a cop with a radar every time, every, every mile marker down the highway, I'm not getting away with speeding because I can't get away from that law that governs me. Whenever I was doing it in the flesh, there was just these signposts along the way, these laws, and I could ignore them from time to time, time to time. But when I'm living in the spirit, it's there all the time. I can't ignore it. I can't get around it. I can't. It, it's, it's constant presence in my life, the holiness of God. I can't ignore that conviction that comes over me when I start to try to do something wrong, when I start to try to follow my flesh, when I, whenever, whenever something entices me out of this world, the Holy Ghost inside of me convicts me. It's a greater standard, not a lesser standard. Amen. I'm going to try, and I know I'm probably going long, and I didn't mean to. I meant to be kind of short-winded today. And I'm going to wrap up as best as I can with this last phrase. We now serve in newness of spirit, not in oldness of the letter. And I want to clarify three terms. First of all, letter. Letter refers to the written law of God as found in the Old Testament. That's the law. It's all 630 commandments. That, that's the letter. The word newness, there are two Greek words for new. One has to do with, with new in relationship to point of origin or time. And one has to do with newness in relation to some comparison to something that is old. That's the sense in which newness is used here. It's not just something that is new as in it was just made brand new. 
its newness refers to quality. It is a newness that is emphasized by putting it next to something that is old and worn out. Let me see if I can make an example that you'll understand. If, if a part breaks on my truck and I go to the parts shop and I buy a new part for my truck, the part that I buy is new. But Brother Donnie, it may have been manufactured in a factory five years ago, ten years ago. I don't know, not ten years ago. My truck isn't ten years old. But you understand, it's not a new part. They didn't make it the minute I walked in there. It, it's, it's got some age on it. It's been in a box, and, it, it, and the box may be dusty, but the part's new. And if I, if I take the new part and I put it next to the old, worn-out part, it's obvious the new part's new and the old part is old. It's worn out. That's the sense in which we're talking about the newness of spirit. It's, it's new in comparison to the old, worn-out thing that it's replacing. Spirit isn't new. Amen. The Spirit's eternal. It's new in the sense of what it's replacing. And what it's replacing is described by the word oldness. And again, old has two different ways to represent it in the Greek. One being in, in point of origin and one being in the usefulness of a thing. And, and what we're dealing with here is not oldness in reference to years and months or, or point of origin. What we're dealing here is oldness as in something that is worn out. It is decrepit. It is useless. And that's what Paul is telling us. The law was fulfilled at the cross, and it now is looked at as being old or worn out or useless as a way of salvation. It can't save me. It's been set aside, and it has been replaced by a new way of living, this newness in the spirit. The contrast here is in between living in the flesh and living in the spirit. And living in the flesh is the old broken down way of doing things. It don't work anymore. Living in the spirit is the new, improved, better way of living. That's what I've been called to. That's what I've been saved for. That old dysfunctional, worn out way of living in the flesh of trying to satisfy the law of God in and of myself. Amen. That thing has been replaced by being filled with the Spirit of God and living in the newness of that Spirit. The Spirit's not new. The Spirit is eternal. Amen. It's been here forevermore and it will be here forevermore. It wasn't created at the cross, but at the cross there was a way made that I could be filled with that Spirit and now I live in the newness of the Spirit. The newness of life that Paul talked about back in chapter 6. It's a new life. It's a new spirit. Amen. When, I, when God filled me the Holy Ghost, I was born again. I became brand new. When Jesus told Nicodemus, you've got to be born again, Nicodemus started scratching his head and said, how am I going to be born again? I'm an old man. How can I, well, how can I be new? I'm not new in the sense of origin. I wasn't, I didn't re-enter my mother's womb and be born again. I'm new in the sense that I'm a new man. Amen. The old man has passed away. The old way of doing things, that's gone. Amen. That old decrepit, broken way, it's been done away with. And I've been given a brand new life. I now serve him in the spirit of God. Amen. That's replaced the old way. That life in the spirit is much better than life in the flesh. And that's what we've been called to. And that is the distinction. And so many people take these passages, these scriptures we've been studying and, and use them as a way to justify continuing to live in the flesh after you've been saved. That's not at all what Paul's talking about. 
I've got to live in the spirit. That's the new life. The old life in the flesh, that was broken. It couldn't save me. And I can't live that way and stay saved. Amen. So the change is described as a transition from oldness to newness. Before I served in the old way of the written letter, the law, and the oldness of the letter. That means I regarded the law as, as a cold, impersonal, abstract code of behavior. And then I obeyed it because of the threat of judgment or punishment that was hanging over my head. It, I detached it from God. The law was the thing that was going to save me and I had to obey it. And my obedience wasn't from my heart. But now I've been saved. Amen. I've been filled with the Spirit of God. And now I obey the same law, the same moral code of God. But I do it as a willing slave, as a willing servant. Not as the unwilling slave to a hated master, but as the willing servant to a loving master. Amen. And I conform myself to the moral code of God externally by the Spirit of God that abides in me internally. That's the newness of life. I serve literally in the newness of the Spirit of God. I have a new and willing service to God that I didn't have before, that is empowered and enabled by the Holy Ghost inside of me. And that's the point that all of chapter 8 is going to expound upon, what it means to live in the newness of life. This verse, verse 6, contains the only mention of the Holy Ghost, of the Spirit of God in this chapter. The rest of this chapter is going to deal with living in the flesh. This single verse looks forward to chapter 8. It's almost as if Paul is writing this, and he knows he's getting to the good stuff. The good stuff is coming in chapter 8, and he just can't stand it anymore. He has to plug in this little bit of a preview of what's coming right here in verse 6. Amen. And in verse 6, we anticipate what's coming in chapter 8. In verse 6, we, we look forward to what it means to live in the newness of spirit. But now, we're going to abandon that premise for the rest of this chapter. We're going to deal with living in the flesh. When we get to verse 8, we're going to detail our chapter 8. We're going to detail what it means to live in the spirit. Amen. Does that make sense? That's where we are. Why don't you stand with me? In the end, the whole discussion comes down to two ways of living. We either live in the flesh or we live in the spirit.